I am willing to wager 20,000 pounds that I will make a tour of the world in 80 days or less. Do you accept? Don't accept. I accept. The train leaves for Dover this evening. Good evening, gentlemen. Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days in Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by three history and geography nerds in an internet power balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly, I'm broadcasting from Hong Kong and joining me today are... Mark Boyle in Surrey in the UK. And Joe Byrne in Bern, Switzerland. And in today's episode we'll be talking about Turkmenistan, formerly known as Turkmenia, an independent nation in Central Asia. Bordered by Kazakhstan to the northwest, Uzbekistan to the north and east, Afghanistan to the southeast, Iran to the south and the Caspian Sea to the west, Turkmenistan forms part of the historic Silk Road between east and west. Today, it has a population of around 5.5 million, the lowest of the Central Asian republics. With around 490,000 square kilometers or 190,000 square miles of territory, Turkmenistan is the world's 52nd largest country making it slightly smaller than Spain and somewhat larger than the U.S. state of California. Annexed by the Russian Empire in 1881, it later became part of the USSR, gaining independence again in 1991. Dominated by plains and deserts, temperatures here are extreme to say the least. The height of summer can see highs of 50 degrees Celsius or 120 degrees Fahrenheit, which is the highest temperature ever recorded in the whole of the former Soviet Union, while in winters temperatures regularly plunge below freezing in many places. Although it's typically a very dry country, Turkmenistan is rich in natural resources. Beneath the Karakum Desert, which dominates the middle of the country, lie massive deposits of oil, natural gas, and coal. This is also the only place that we've talked about that has a flag with a carpet on it. I think that's that's probably true, yeah. Yeah, And might, might continue to be true for um, a while. <laughs> I would imagine so. I don't know too many places that, that can boast having a carpet on their flag. Nope. Uh, so as we've done uh, in previous episodes this season, we're going to start this episode off by talking about something that we're looking forward to talking about in the upcoming episode. So, uh, Mark, how about you go first? Um, normally, I have a mental debate at this point because I always forget about this section, but <laughs> it's very obvious today. It's Melon Day. Melon Day Fair. is my highlight. That's what I want to talk about. Melon Day. All right. I know nothing about Melon Day, so I'm looking forward to hearing about that. Uh, Joe, what about you? I came across a surprising anecdote in kind of the early history where, where this place played an important role in a kind of major geopolitical shakeup. And uh, one guy's sort of um, insistence on righteousness gained him a place in the history books, even if it maybe cost him uh, his head. So uh, if you speak up against power, sometimes you can have your name written down. Beside your separate right. head. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, for me, I'm going to talk about uh, one of the world's greatest cities that almost nobody has ever heard of, as far as I'm aware, and uh, that no longer exists. It's a it's a lost city, huh. um, which has a has a wonderful description from a historian uh, about what you would have seen at the time if you entered this this lost city. So um, also. Because uh, Central Asia, I guess, as we've talked about uh, previously, can be a bit of a blind spot for some people. Maybe we should start Guilty. out by talking a little bit uh, about us. the... Yes, us too, before we started researching this episode. <laughs> um, 
we should talk a little bit about the relationship between uh, Turkey and Turkmen and Turkmenistan. Um, so, Joe, mm-hmm. do you want to elaborate a little bit on that? You know, what the distinction is there? Like, I does mean, this place have basically, anything to do with Turkey? Like, the, the broadest answer is kind of. Um, Turkey and Turkmenistan Helpful. don't have any connection today. But yep. the word that word Turk is a general sort of ethnic term for a big group of people, you know, Uzbeks and Kyrgyz and and Turkmen's and Azerbaijanis and Turks, all of whom have a common origin in the Eurasian steppe, so d- deep into Central Asia and to the east, and over a number of centuries, Turkic tribes. So that's the term. The broadest term is Turkic. And that describes all of these different tribes that came on horseback uh, and settled in Central Asia. And eventually they end up in Turkey and that's they become the heads of the Ottoman Empire. And so th- those Turks probably became the most pol- geopolitically relevant Turkic tribe. And they kind of took the name to be their own. But we also have a, a remnant of that name in Turkmenistan. Yeah. Yeah. And Turkmenistan is just yeah. another version of that name. You know, it's like the difference between Dutch yeah. and Deutschland. You know, they're kind of the same origin, but they're different people now. Yeah. And and how, because I'm confused, how does the bird figure, how does the bird figure into this? The, the, it, oh, the turkey bird. Does the bird, bird have a role in the state? Uh, I mean, you, you laugh, but it is actually, it is called <laughs> after the country Turkey, I think. Ah, really? The yeah. bird? And in French, it's called Donde, which means from India. Mm. So in general, the turkey is just called that bird from some far eastern country we don't know much about in Western Europe. All right. And in English, it's Turkey. And in, in French and Italian, it's India. But isn't it native to North America? Yep. It looks like a bird that isn't native. To... Oh. It's a really bad name. It's a terrible <laughs> name for a bird. Uh, but that's nothing to do with this episode. All right. All right, I enjoy that. Okay, er, early early history. Let's 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 kick off with some early history. Yeah. So you'll be glad to hear from a, from a timekeeping point of view that um, things are a bit sketchy for the early history of Turkmenistan. Yes. Amazing. I feel like we get a version of this from from you in every early history section, Joe. I feel like yes. this is oh, yeah. this is the beginning of almost every early history section. Is uh, yes, it is. You'll be glad to hear he- that they didn't write much down. Um, <laughs> here, so. there's a good reason. Because you've got yeah. a desert that's been growing, you've got rivers that keep changing course, and you've got lots of wind erosion. So even what might have been there archaeologically, a lot of it's gone. Right. Um, and or, the, or, the or Soviets also did it, some well. incredible building projects that uh, that probably destroyed a lot that of. We'll talk stuff. about. <laughs> mm. So while incredible, but uh, erasing of history. Yeah, it seems like it's been a quiet enough spot for a lot of history, though. Um, so in the Stone Age, there there is like ten thousand years ago, there is evidence that people lived on the east coast of the Caspian Sea. So there were humans there. Uh, they domesticated goats and they probably harvested wild grains, but likely didn't actually farm uh, corn or wheat. From six thousand to four thousand BC, there there is evidence of a significant um, culture called the Jaitun civilization, which is named after a a site in Turkmenistan, and they are the first evidence of agriculture in this region, uh, about 32 kilometers north of current-day capital Ashgabat. Um, mm. They're in, in what's called the Khopet Dag foothills. So this is kind of the southern bit of Turkmenistan where it borders Iran. 
there's rivers and there's these little mountains and there's evidence that people were domesticating wheat and corn along here and uh, building cities. Into the Bronze and Iron Age, there's uh, evidence of mud-bricked houses and post holes that look an awful lot like yurts. So even though yeah. we don't yet have uh, have influx of um, Central Asian nomads that we'll see later on, some of the kind of structures like, like yurt tents uh, seem to already be part of the culture that exists there already. Um, okay. And that, that makes sense. I mean, in terms of like the environment that they're in, yeah. yurts being well adapted to their environment, it being similar to the exactly. environment. And whether similar who adapted similar, from similar, who is another question. Well, and yeah, and, and similar solutions to similar similar problems. Yeah, and yurts aren't that different from teepees in the broadest sense. So yeah. it's a solution to a problem. And basically these would have been nomadic people and you wouldn't want to live in a mud brick house during the summer because you would overheat and die. So yep. yurts are mm. a great summer house. And there's this constant pattern throughout the archaeological record of sort of population and depopulation. A river might change course or uh, flood and then just you get nothing for a couple of thousand years. And so that's part of why technical advances in agriculture and so on were quite late to develop in modern day Turkmenistan region. I mean, for a long period, this is a this is very much like a a place for nomadic peoples, right? Like we're going to see that. Yeah, very much so. You know, going forward is population and depopulation in that sense makes... Because of the nature of the landscape. Yeah. And yeah, mm. but you've got to remember their neighbours are Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley, which are some of the most booming civilizations, uh, And technical advances are, are probably coming from migration out of Iran in particular. But most of the territory, as, as we've touched upon, was occupied by, by nomads. And the term that's used in Persian sources... In the Rig Veda, which is one of the Hindu religious texts, and also in Chinese sources and Greek sources, is uh, something approximating Dahe. And they were a confederation of tribes in this region, east of the Caspian Sea and sort of north of this this uh, more civilised kind of river valley region. There is this, again, um, question about where the name comes from. And Dahe seems to be correlated to an Indo-European word for um, the strangler, which was a euphemism for a wolf. And yeah. in Georgia, we had the same idea, like the Georgians don't call themselves Georgians, but yeah. this Gorgos word yeah, meant wolf. Stuff. And there's also a Gorgon province nearby in, in, in Iran that also comes from the same mm. origin. So there's this consistent idea that like the people north of of the mainstream Iranian culture were these kind of predatory wolves, wolves. or perhaps there was yeah. some religious symbol we're not aware of. Um, yeah. But that that's uh, just something I thought would be nice to call back to. And this is when we enter into um, history rather than prehistory. We start getting things written down. History! Yeah! So, uh... (laughs) (laughs) We've got our new theme music, people. So I just get excited. So you've probably both heard of Cyrus the Great. He was one of the early Persian emperors uh, from from the first... The Achaemenid Empire, the first Persian let, Empire. Let, let's be honest with ourselves. Cyrus the the medium, Cyrus Mediocre. the good PR department. Yeah, that's what I mean. And he, he never never took the bins out. I'm telling you, living them two years, never took the bins out once. <laughs> Jerk. He led a, a kind of confederation of Iranian Indo-European tribes. So Iranian Aryan, that that terminology comes from this region, um, and. Uh, a historian called Barossus reports Cyrus being killed in battle 
Uh, so he was he was a great leader. He conquered lots of territory, unified it all under his his empire. But he was killed by a, a Dahe archer in uh, in the region slightly further east from Turkmenistan. So the Dahe were were well renowned as mounted archers. Presumably that's how they hunted as well. Mm, and uh, mm-hmm. one of them took down took down Cyrus. Um, nonetheless, Turkmenistan was incorporated into this empire as a satrapy and uh, by the mid 400s BC we get the first reliable mention of these people the Dahe during the reign of Xerxes the Great they're all the great um, Xerxes the first to be specific and I think he's the guy who invaded Greece you know in 300 the, the 8 foot tall uh, androgynous uh, multi multi bejeweled that guy uh, yeah, who who runs into Jerry Butler, <laughs> famous Greek Jerry Butler? <laughs> I, I'm a Greek. Yeah. Anyway, um, and the Dahir are included on a tablet listing all of the gen, all of the peoples of the empire. So by the time of Xerxes, they're a well-established part of of this uh, of this Persian Empire. In 330 BC, the Dahir were fought in a battle in, in a great battle called the Battle of Gagamela where Alexander the Great the uh, Macedonian king uh, defeated the Persian army Alexander recruited the Dahe into his army as mounted archers when they invaded the Indian subcontinent so they were playing an important role in in the empires of their time Alexander is even alleged to build a city uh, near the Murgrab River any idea what it was called? Probably Alexandria. Oh, I know. Yeah, yeah, you got it in one. Oh, Alexandria. <laughs> there weren't enough. Uh, it would later become Merv, which we're going to talk about at length. I yeah. think uh, it's going. Mm. To be, it becomes a very important city. So the Hellenistic uh, Mesopotamia-based Seleucid Empire takes over, and it wasn't as as stable as some of the previous empires. So in two forty seven, the uh, local governor, the Parthian satrap, and Andragoras declares independence for his kingdom. So he says, you know, there was a succession crisis going on over in Antioch where all the Greeks were fighting over who would be the next emperor. And he just goes, I think I'll be a king. Bye. Uh, so that's how, how Parthia becomes a thing. Um, not long after that, but a decade later, the leader of the Parni tribe, which is one of these Dahe tribes, uh, a guy called Ashk and his brothers, let a successful Ash invasion. you shall receive, mm-hmm. right, guys? Anyway, I don't know. <laughs> he sees the crown, or he sees the leadership of uh, of Parthia, and basically these people merged into the Parthians, and the Parthian Empire lasted for about 500 years, led by people from originally from Turkmenistan. Now, the dynasty led by Ashk has a has a great name. Um, I'll help you out by telling you he was known in, in Greek as Arsaces, so his the, di- ar- the arseholes close, <laughs> close. his dynasty was called the arsacids the arsaces wow yep all right so yeah, names so good they doesn't sound twice. great in retrospect arsacids no right. no um but anyway they they ruled from nisa which is a, a big big city near present-day ashgabat uh, which is most likely named after ashk though there are various other claims on the etymology um, and this city was destroyed by an earthquake around the zero point in our calendar sometime before, just before or just after 
uh, canonical Christ birthday. Over over the first couple of centuries AD, a variety of tribal groups moved into the region. We're not going to spend any time because they all got replaced or in- integrated. But you had Huns, according to Tacitus, living in Balkan province. Uh, our old friends, the Allens, were also there. Yeah, the Allens <laughs> from uh, from Georgia. Uh, yeah. Um, Alan Shatter, uh, yep. Alan Thick, all the all the guys. Yeah, uh, all those guys. Was, um, yep. They were the first non-Iranian people in the area. Whatever. Um, in the four hundreds and five hundreds, there was a ten-tribe Turkic confederation, which sounds like a sports contest. A TTC. Uh, they pushed back Sassanid control in what is modern Turkmenistan and sort of started taking some independence. Um, and the settlements along the Amudarya River or the Oxus River, uh, included uh, Merv and Nisa, and they started to play a big role in, in silk agriculture and um, as a caravan route to, to Tang, China. Yeah. Uh, so from, silk you know, Road, baby. Silk Road between Baghdad and, and China. And yeah. we're also producing silk. Up to this point, pretty much everyone was a Zoroastrian or a Buddhist or something else we don't have any records of. But... <laughs> Um, there, were, there were these things or something else possibly I don't know uh, but <laughs> this is the era when Islam comes into existence so over in Mecca and Medina this guy called Muhammad is uh, shaking mm-hmm. things up and he, he, uh, yeah, shaking things up is <laughs> yeah is a way is to that, put it is yeah, that an understatement yeah it's uh, like the shaking Stevens of his day in many ways yeah uh, rose up the charts and so very rapidly the <laughs> Arabia and Syria and, and a number of other countries in, and, and Palestine, all of that region comes under the control of, of Arabs uh, and their new religion. And basically it continues to expand under successive caliphs who are the secular leaders of the Muslim world. Uh, and in the 8th and 9th century, this came to include Central Asia. Under Uthman ibn Affan, the Umayyad caliph, Merv was conquered and became the capital of Khorasan province. And... This began a process of Islamification where people converted to Islam over time and uh, were incorporated into the Muslim world. The spotlight came onto Merv in February uh, 748 when a guy called Abu Muslim, which I think was a a pen name, uh, he started... what's called the Abbasid Revolution. So this is a kind of a civil war within the Muslim world where the Umayyads were overthrown and replaced by the Abbasids who were descended from an uncle of Muhammad and so claimed they had a better they had a better call on on the leadership than the Umayyads who were sort of from a a rival tribe uh, of to the one that Muhammad was from. And he raises the black standard, uh, which became the symbol of, of kind of a holy war and is still used today by, by less, uh, Ooh, less no. pleasant people. Oh, yeah. And with 10,000 troops under his control, he, he defeated the Umayyad governor of Khorasan and took Merv. And this was the first step in, in the Abbasids actually coming to rule the Muslim world. But the famous story I alluded to earlier was how Abu Muslim was was challenged by a goldsmith in the city of Merv who told him it was unrighteous for him to make war on his fellow Muslims. And he said, I see nothing more meritorious I can undertake in God's behalf than to wage holy war against you. Since I lack the strength to do it with my hand, I will do it with my tongue. 
but God will see, and in him I will hate you. Uh, so Abu Muslim had him killed. Um, oh, the man's name was Abu Ishaq Ibrahim Ibn Maimun, which is a great name. And uh, he's sort of remembered as an example of speaking truth to power in, in the Muslim world. This revolution moved the centre of gravity of the Muslim world from Damascus to Baghdad and began the, the Islamic Golden Age. And a lot of Persian influences and sort of former Zoroastrian traditions and stuff started getting absorbed into, into Islam and into the Islamic world. And I'd recommend anyone interested in that to read Tom Holland's book In the Shadow of the Sword, which covers yeah. this period in great detail and how the Persian empires played a big role in, in shaping future, um, the future of the Muslim world. Hey listeners, uh, for those of you who listened to our Singapore episode, you might recall that Mark asked me if I'd been to get the most famous drink in Singapore's most famous hotel. At the time, I told him that I hadn't, but you might be glad to hear that I've just since rectified that. I am currently sitting in the historic Raffles Hotel in the heart of Singapore. And I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all of you who have stuck with us in our journey over the past two years and change since that episode. Remember, if you really like what we're doing, you can support us at patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast. Thank you again for listening and cheers. Okay, so in the 1200s, much of Turkmenistan was, as we mentioned, inhabited by these nomadic tribes. Uh, still very much like, a, you know, Turkmenistan isn't a thing yet. Uh, it's just this this region around the Karakum Desert. So the Arab people who had settled in this region that we mentioned earlier were being uh, now being pushed out of this area by a group of people known as the Ohuz. Uh, these were a group of Turkic nomadic tribes who lived in present-day Mongolia and ar around Lake Baikal in present-day southern Siberia. Ohuz is a catch-all term, and these nomadic, uh, largely nomadic people were made up of many different subcultures and different tribes uh, were led by a number of different chieftains and kings uh, and lacked a central uh, central authority. And they all claim descent from a, a fictional or a, a legendary guy called Oghuz Khan. So the tribes were all right. sort of like the grandsons of their common father, but he right. probably didn't exist. So by the 10th century, these people begin to move into Central Asia. Uh, and Islamic sources begin to refer to the largely Muslim people as Turkmens. And this is the first instance that we have of uh, the origin of the name that we spoke about at the top of the episode. Mm -hmm. These people would later go on to form the basis of the Ottoman Empire in modern day Turkey. Uh, thanks to the silk trade, Merv and Nisa had both become famous for their sericulture, which I think you, you mentioned a little bit earlier, Joe, yep. which is the, the raising of silkworms or silk farming. Uh, Merv was also the, I, I guess, the biggest city in this region at the time, and yep. it was a stop on the Silk Road between Baghdad and China. Uh, saw a lot of trade and began to grow rapidly around this time. The Ohuz then expanded west and north of the Aral Sea uh, into present-day Kazakhstan, absor absorbing not only Iranians but also Turks from the Kipchak and Karluk ethno-linguistic groups. But again, all of these efforts were very detached. There was no central authority leading the Oghuz or Turk, uh, Turkmen people at this time until a tribal leader who would come to later be known as Seljuk came into the picture. 
Uh, he had ambitions to create a, a people and an empire of his own. And he adopted Islam and took it upon himself to spread this religion throughout the land. Uh, he founded a dynasty, mm. an empire that bore his name on the basis of these Oghuz elements that had migrated southward into present-day Turkmenistan and Iran. So oh, this is where we see the, the beginnings of the Seljuk Empire, which was a Sunni Muslim empire centered yeah. in Persia. But it went on to control massive areas of land throughout Central Asia. Uh, at its height, the Seljuk Empire controlled an area stretching from the Hindu Kush to Western Anatolia uh, and from Central Asia to the Whoa. Persian Gulf. Whoa, that's pretty, pretty impressive. That's a lot of stuff. Yeah. And they just yeah. kind of co- they, they come mean, into the area, they adopt the religion and then they conquer it. It's kind of impressive. Yeah. And the yeah. Arabs were presumably under their control now. Yeah. Which is a bit, cra- um, bit of a crazy turnaround. So back in Turkmenistan, uh, Merv had grown into a fabulous and wealthy city as the Seljuks became enriched by trade along the Silk Road. Mm-hmm. In 1157, a landowner's revolt brought down the empire, but the trade that had flourished under the Seljuks continued. And according yeah. to uh, some estimates, Merv actually had become the biggest city in the world by 1200. Whoa. Uh, yeah. So its uh, city was built on a desert oasis and at, uh, in 1200 boasted apparently a population of around half a million people. And that might not wow. sound like a lot today, but uh, it's, in it's 1280, there were only around 400 million people on the whole planet. So, you know, if you got half a million people in one spot, can, that's Can I, can that's I say lot. this? Um, I, I, I did reading for the next section, but it mentioned something that happens very soon and it's making me very worried for oh yes <laughs> oh yes you're really you're really build, building this up so really, biggest city in the world lots of people all having a great time cool yeah lots of lots of people here it's lots of i couldn't be better lots of trade like it's an idyllic desert city uh apparently featured an uh, impressive irrigation system everything is good forever uh dams dikes canals mm-hmm. reservoirs to manage the flow of water they can't go wrong yeah, no, I mean, what what could possibly uh, what could possibly happen in this situation? Oh, I mean, uh, even I, I, one account that I read even uh, talked about an ice house, which they had, like a Ooh, like a what? I guess really? a ancient oh, precursor of a, in a desert oasis, of a, a fridge going off. Yeah, in a desert oasis. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I've got. I, a... I get something I'm going to talk about later on. Now, way way <laughs> more. Okay, that's really interesting. Okay. Yeah. Carry on. So yeah. there's an article in The Guardian, which I'm going to quote from here by a guy called uh, Kanish Tharoor, and it gives a, a, a pretty great description of, of what the city would have been like at the time. So it said a trader arriving to the northeast or the southwest would have been relieved at the site of the city of Merv, crisscrossed by ca- canals and bridges full of gardens and orchards. Medieval Merv and its surrounding oasis were green and richly cultivated, a welcome reprieve from the bleakness of the Karakum Desert. The city's enclosing walls ran in an oblong circuit of five miles, interrupted by strong towers and four main gates. Its streets were mostly narrow and winding, crowded with closely built houses and occasionally larger structures such as mosques, schools, libraries, and bathhouses. Wow. Uh, Many different polities chose to make Merv the seat from which to rule uh, Khorasan, a region that included eastern Iran and parts of modern-day Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Afghanistan. Sounds nice. Sounds amazing, yeah. Yeah, it's it sounds like a very very nice place, and then around this time the Mongols turned their attention towards. Uh, oh no! 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 The Mongols are sort of the the the, the Middle East and Central Asia as the English are coming. Um, yes, 
Yeah, in some ways. The Mongols are are coming. Yeah. You got your nice cities, you got your civilization, you You got your trade, your silk. What's that? There's something on the horizon. Yep. In 1221, Mongol warriors swept across Central Asia and arrived at the gates of Merv. A Mongol army under the leadership of Genghis Khan's son laid siege for six days before the city surrendered, prompting one of the worst massacres of this age. Got a, mm. I've got a quote from a guy called Atta Malik Juviani, who was a governor of Baghdad around this time and was a, a, a Persian historian. And he mm. says, the Mongols ordered that apart from 400 artisans, the whole population, including the women and children, should be killed and no one, whether man or woman, be spared. To each Mongol soldier was allotted the execution of three or four hundred Persians. So many had been killed by nightfall that the mountains became hillocks and the plains were soaked with the blood of the mighty. I, I so had, remember I had how read I said, that quote and I put yeah, it into my notes that's and that's quote. why I was afraid because I knew this was yeah, coming. It's a, it's a <sighs> great quote. Sorry to have stolen that from you, Mark. Kyle, I'm high. Um, no, no, so, God. You're welcome to it. Yeah, so there were... Approximately, as I said, around 500,000 people living in the city at this time. The Mongols claimed that they killed around 300,000. And that's almost certainly an exaggeration. But, um, I mean, I was kind of looking at different numbers and different massacres throughout history. And the, the only thing, the only one event in world in world history that killed more people than the Mongols was World War Two. So, I mean, they... <laughs> They murdered a lot, a lot huh. of people. Um, there's, there's no real way to know exactly yeah, how many they people were, were killed they were pretty at this, efficient at this at, site. At yeah. Uh, so Merv was uh, once all the, its they, inhabitants had been they killed. They say 300,000. I say it couldn't be more than 290. Yeah. So Merv, unfortunately, after all of its inhabitants were murdered, uh, it was burned to the ground. And Genghis Khan ordered that uh, Turkmenistan's farms and irrigation systems be destroyed. Oh he wasn't great, was he? No. So its its ruins today lie not far from the city of uh, Mary in modern day Turkmenistan and are listed as yeah. uh, listed by UNESCO as a World Heritage Site. But yeah, that was effectively mm-hmm. the end of this city, which which was, you know, quite honestly one of the one of the greatest cities in the world at the time. Uh, I mean, and it, today mm-hmm. it's yeah. it just no longer exists. So. <clears throat> Yeah, pretty pretty sad end to uh, to Merv. Well, well done, Genghis. Yeah, yeah. I believe if you if you visit Mary in in modern day Turkmenistan, you can you you know you can take a trip. It's maybe a, an hour to to visit the ruins of Merv, but um, yeah, no longer around. It, so it is we, quite rare that you encounter you encounter a major city like like Merv that is just not there now. I mean, occasionally yes, it's, you know, know, due it's due to environmental factors. You know, the yeah, water went kind or of the crops failed like, or whatever. That, there's just nothing there. Like you can look yeah. up pictures. We'll put some in the show notes. But it is just ruins. Like it's. I mean, it's 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 a lot of ruins. It's like Carthage yeah, or something. There's, there's nothing there anymore. Mm. So that's just about where my section ends. Mark, do you wanna Sweet. do you wanna keep going? Keep the ball rolling. Oh yeah, I'll I'll gather together these blood-soaked rags and march yeah. march forward the, into Turkmenistan. The blood of the mighty. Uh, Okay, uh, the period between the Mongol conquest and the Russian invasion, that's a... Uh, that's a great that's sandwich a... to be in. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, that's on the way, guys. Don't, don't worry. You don't the want to Russians be at the skinny coming. end of, of, uh, of period... either one of those, I guess. I hope, I hope yeah. it's not all bleak in so the middle. It's dominated but... by uh, competitions between the neighbors of the Turkmen. 
Okay. So the period saw various post Genghis Khanates. Khanate is like the term, it means like kingdom, essentially. Uh, the, the lands of the Khan fight each other almost constantly. And much of the Turkmen's land is pretty useless, valueless, so it, and is filled with Turkmen, who are themselves uh, noted tough customers. So, um, mm. you know, not, not really anybody desperate to take over Turkmenistan. Um, the second half of the 1300s was a notable time for the area because uh, despite being, you know, as I've mentioned, a, a, a not very attractive place to take over, uh, it was taken over by Timur the Lame, a.k.a. Tamerlane. Tamerlane. So uh. I'm I'm saying we, we can't really give him all of all of the time we should devote to him because he's super the, interesting. There is a history of the Mongols podcast that I think ends with an episode on him. It, it, yeah, it's, it's quite there. interesting. It's it's kind of a twelve episode or thirteen episode series. But if we ever want to do Uzbekistan, we kind of need to mm. save Tamerlane because he he's Uzbek. He's not actually really Turkmen. Just a quick brief on the guy. He was a bandit and got shot full of arrows on one of his classic sheepy stealing adventures. Uh, according to legend, he won the respect of his tribe by engaging in a race for the leadership of the tribe. He was lame because of the arrows and so on, but he threw his hat over the finish line and the judge of the race, uh, while obviously a total cheater for allowing this to stand, said Tamerlane had used his head to win the race and therefore Uh. he should be the leader, I guess. Uh, Anyway, look, however he did it, he gained some influence in his tribe and went from strength to strength. Uh, From the ancient city of Samarkand, he uh, expanded out in all directions. He took over Syria, Iran, Mm -hmm. Iraq, most of Turkey. Mm -hmm. He got all the way to Moscow in Russia. He took over Moscow and also Delhi in India. So this was a real world empire he built. Um, I want to just give out some credit to a historical and semantical study of Turkmen's and Turkmen tribes. A master's thesis by F. Isen Ozalp of the Department of International Relations in Ankara. Uh, this is uh, one of the a text I found which helped me through the uh, very confusing web of Turkmen tribes that mm. abound from here forward. Um, so there, according to, to this anyway, there were three major criteria of being ethnically Turkmen. Being a descendant of one of the leading Turkmen tribes, speaking Turkmen as a mother tongue, and being Muslim. Accordingly, Turkmenness was basically based on genealogy deriving from the true Turkmen genealogical tree. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tur- Turkmen's as in individuals like to give details about their previous generations up to seven generations back if you ask them the awareness of ancestry might suggest the people from a common lineage would be unified but in this case it actually is more usually more easily used to divide them into groupings tribes subtribes clans etc so the fractal family tree of Turkmen's it actually divides them more than it unifies them mm. Political authority uh, was not hereditary. Uh, a Russian general, Grodokov, noted the Turkmen's regarded their Khan rather as the principal servant of the whole community. Oh, that's yeah. nice. Turkmen's were always okay. very independent and did not formally recognize any authority but their own free will. They proudly say they neither rest under the shade of a tree nor a king. We Turkmen's are a people without a head and we will not have one. We are all equal with us. Everyone is king. Hmm. Nice. I mean, it's it's kind of a it's it's kind of a nice attitude to have, you know. To I mean, we 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 sort of spoke spoke about it earlier about like the the fact that they're very nomadic, kind of scattered, leaderless people. But I mean, that that sort of sounds like that's what they want to be. That's it, you know, they're happy with that situation. Well, nomads that's, don't need that's kings. Kind of what they're aspiring to. Yeah, it, it it's the libertarian dream essentially. Yeah. You only they, need they, kings they if you have a kingdom. city with uh, people doing different kinds of work. 
and you yeah. have to have someone to decide who's valued more. If everyone's a hunter or a farmer, or, that's it. Local transitory kind of units. You need you need to make decisions, but they don't need to be. You know, everyone's equally qualified. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, Tamerlane's descendants, the Timurids, uh, give away to the Safavids, who are Uzbek in nature. Uh, Uz- Uzbek, again, it's always the Uzbeks. Um, when the Uzbeks gain control of Khwarezm, the area basically everything south of the Caspian, in the first half of the 16th century, they immediately began to plunder the Turkmen areas, forcing them to pay tribute. This made the Turkmens very unhappy. Uh, the Ursari tribe of the Turkmens were forced to pay tribute, and later killed some of the Khan's tax collectors, the Turkmens were then punished and forced to pay uh, 40,000 sheep for the loss, which is, I mean, I, I would imagine a lot of sheep. Sounds like a lot time. of sheep. Yeah. Sounds like a lot of sheep. 40,000 yeah. anything is a lot of anything. Uh, the Ursaris and the Khorasan uh, Salurs both paid 16,000. So uh, they, they divvied it out amongst the various Turkmen tribes. Um, Turkmens were uncomfortable with their situation within the Khanate. Uh, the control of the largest part of the fertile lands and a great deal of the water were under Uzbek supervision and control. Uh, the Uzbeks oh, were much more populous. Uh, yeah, they had all the water, they had all the food, they had all the political connections. Uh, they were second-class citizens, essentially. Uh, at the end of the 17th century, the Ursari Turkmen tribe and a part of the Yomush began to settle, mm. uh, as then did the Kabuldur and the Teke. So all the, all the Turkmen tribes start settling. And, and these are still the tribes nomadic. to this day, actually, these the, names. These, these are the tribes, yeah, exactly. Familiar. So uh, there, I'm going to end with one... One story, which is just, it's really not so. Um, okay. Alexander Bekovich Cherkasky. He's uh, Russian? Muslim by birth. Uh, yes, essentially. Uh, Muslim by birth, uh, born near Georgia. Alexander converts to Christianity, goes to work for the Russians. In 1707, he was commissioned by Peter the Great, another one of these guys who calls himself great because he's actually not great. We'll see. Um, so he... Uh, <laughs> Went to study navigation. Not great if you need to call yourself. Seventeen eleven went back to Russia. Exactly. He could have just been very tall. Yeah. He seems to lose a lot of wars in Europe, so I'm not sure. Yeah, feels a bit insecure. This guy. So two years later, a Turkmen traveler arrives in Astrakhan, announces to local authorities that the Oxus River, which we've discussed, currently forms the Turkmenistan border in modern day, uh, formerly flowing to the Caspian, has been diverted by the Kievans to the Aral Sea in order to extract mm. golden sand from the river waters. Oh. The, the local prince, governor at the time, uh, sent his envoys to the Khanate of Kiva in order to verify the fable. They returned with a sack of golden sand allegedly extracted from the Oxus. Hang on, is, 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 this, is this true? The... This, is as fu- this is as far as, as, as I know. I was only able to... I wasn't really super able to verify a lot of this, but uh, yeah, this is this is the story. They diverted oh, the but, river. It's a good yarn. So the fable of a Central Asian land of gold, an El Dorado, if you will, uh, was given credit as a result of these guys coming back with a sack of gold. The Turkmen's were brought to uh, St. Petersburg. The, the Tsar in, was informed about the fabulous wealth and desperately needed gold because he was losing a war against Sweden, the Great Northern War for Peter the Great, who was not great. Um, certainly not great at war against the Swedes, I can tell you that. So he sends 7,000 people with Alexander uh, down to this neck of the woods to survey the area, get me lots of gold, gold and cities and gold. Um, the next section is entitled The Kievan Disaster. Uh, so Alexander goes down with these orders. Uh, he does a bit of surveying. Uh, he, I think his men kind of dissipate a bit because in 1717 he has to raise another army. Um, 
together with some engineers and land surveyors, they, they head down. Many months later, several Tatars returned and brought news of what happened. The newly built forts in Turkmenistan were at once evacuated and at considerable loss from inclement weather and Turkmen tribesmen. What exactly happened is unclear. According to a few surviving members of his contingent, they had advanced to within 120 kilometers of Kiva when the Khan attacked them with a 24,000 strong army. After three days of bloody fighting, the Kievans were defeated. Seeing that the enemy were very numerous, Alexander decided to attempt diplomacy. Mm -mm -mm. The Russian officer, accompanied by only 500 of his men, rode into the enemy's camp to propose terms. The Khan surrendered to him, welcomed him warmly, persuading him to divide his men to stay in five separate towns in order to facilitate their feeding. The Kievans then attacked the five towns one by one, slaughtering most Russians, selling others as slaves, and executing all Russian officers, including Alexander. Uh, Peter the Great basically great. just kind of chalked it up to uh, experience. That was, that was it. Uh, he was like, well, eh, you know, live and learn. In, in my case, I will live and I will learn. Alexander wow. will not live, will not learn. Uh, and it'll, it'll be about another hundred years before the Russians bother the Turkmen as a result of this. But bother they do. And bother they do. Bother they do indeed, yes. All right, uh, we'll take a quick break here and then we'll come back with uh, the Russians are coming. Yay. Uh-oh. So, I mean, Mark, you just uh, Mark just talked about um, the the previous attempt at uh, a Russian invasion of Turkmenistan, and and uh, it took you know about a hundred years or so, as we said, for those wounds to heal. Uh, but between 1847 and 1865, the Russian Empire had captured a lot of territory around that region, and they decided to give it a second go. So at the point where they decided to uh, move into Turkmenistan, they held a triangle uh, of territory whose southern point was 1,000 miles south of Siberia, 1,200 miles south, uh, uh, southeast of their supply bases on the Volga. So the next step was to turn this triangle into a rectangle by cr crossing the Caspian Sea. So they began to move into Turkmenistan in 1869, establishing a port on the eastern side of the Caspian Sea known as Krasnovodsk which translates into red water. Uh, and this is current-day Turkmenbashi in uh, Turkmenistan today. Uh, Turkmenbashi is on right. the west coast of Turkmenistan and would serve as the terminus of the Trans-Caspian Trans Railway, which will become important in a few years here. And mm. uh, that was the base of the Russian invasion into Turkmenistan at this time. Krasnovodsk, which I'm going to refer to as Turkmenbashi from this point forward, served as Imperial Russia's base of operations against the uh, nomadic Turkmen tribes and they they essentially fortified that area and then began moves, moving south uh, towards Ashgabat. They sort of move into the interior dispelling nomadic tribes one by one uh, and severely impacting the Turkmen slave trade. Not, not very sympathetic. <laughs> yeah. You, you impacted our slave trade. Yeah. How dare nah, you. Damn it. Uh. <laughs> 
Those are our slaves. Um, <laughs> who who are selling slaves to? Themselves, I would imagine. Right. Yeah, I think they were just shuffling slaves in, you know, between different tribes. As, as far as I understand, I don't think I don't think they were kind of exporting slaves yeah. from right. this region. I, I could be wrong, but I didn't read a lot into that. So the the first battle of Goktepa, which translates into Blue Hill. This is a battle uh, between the Turkmens and the Russians. Goktepa was an ancient walled fortress inside which the Turkmens gathered to protect themselves from the impure Russian forces. The Russians only lost one soldier to every 10 lost by the Turkmen at this battle. But the fortress Ooh. held out. They weren't able to break down the walls. Uh, but in 1880, the Russians would return again with a new, more determined commander in the second battle of Goktepa. The fortress was, was attacked by 6,000 Russians uh, and defended by about 25,000 Turkmen. There was a 23-day siege, which was broken mm -hmm. when the Russian forces dug a tunnel underneath the walls, placed a mine underneath the wall, and blew up the wall. Oh, so on January 12th, 1881, the walls were breached, and the defenders of Goaktepa, along with about 40,000 civilians who were inside the fortress, fled across the desert uh, from the Russian forces. This is seen by many historians, from what I read, as the turning point in the struggle and sort of, you know, where Russia kind of breaks Turkmenistan. Russians uh, pursue the civilians across the desert and, you know, pick them off. Um, oh, my God. It's Mad Max. Yeah. Uh, a week later, Russian forces occupied Ashgabat, 25 miles to the southeast. But that was about as far as they got at that point. In May 1881, this occupied area was uh, annexed as the Trans-Caspian Oblast. And, you know, people who have listened to our Jewish Autonomous Oblast episode will know mm. that it's sort of Oblast like Oblast for all. Yeah. It's like a Russian oh, state, state province type of thing. Uh, um, yeah. I have a quotation just on this. It was from uh, General Mikhail Skobolev, who was the, the main the main dude, the main Russian dude who was in charge of this, uh, the fighting. Mm. Uh, just a, a, a cheery reminder of what, of what their plan was here. I hold it as principle that the duration of peace is in direct proportion to the slaughter you inflict upon the enemy. The harder oh, you hit them, the longer they remain quiet. Yep. Wow. <laughs> okay. see. He, he, he was keen on killing. He was very keen. Yeah, that was certainly the Russian attitude Murder at the time. equals and, peace, I mean, basically. A uh, quick note here on the Trans-Caspian Railway, which is, again very important to this region uh, at the time and is a, is, a, is a kind of Russian pet project and is, is super important to, you know, them being able to ferry troops and, and material across Turkmenistan and around the, the Karakum Desert and also throughout sort of Central Asia. Uh, in 1789, the Russian Empire begins construction of Trans-Caspian Railway. Uh, construction through to Askabad was completed in 1886. And in 1905, then Russia established a train ferry across the Caspian Sea from Baku in Azerbaijan uh, to modern-day Turkmenbashi. Uh, so this is on, you know, the western edge of Turkmenistan. Uh, this allowed goods to flow more yeah. easily along the Silk Road, passing directly through Turkmenistan and under R Russian influence. Beginning at Turkmenbashi, after you cross the Caspian Sea, the railway heads southeast along the edge of the Karakum Desert. It passes through Ashgabat and continues southeast to the Iranian border, and a branch line built in the 1890s then would lead uh, into Afghanistan as well. In February 1882, a Russian general visited Merv and began uh, talking to the leader of the Turkmen tribes who had been in command at Goktepa. And Russian leaders persuaded them that another battle would not go well for them. Uh, and then 
essentially, as, as far as I can tell, Merv was was somewhat peacefully annexed by the Russians then, because I think maybe playing into the sentiment that that from your quote earlier, Mark, that um, you know the the Turkmens had been had been well and truly thumped at that earlier battle, and you know now that the Russians had had reached their walls, they were sort of like uh, maybe maybe we don't want to you know get slaughtered again. You, so, you make it sound like a. A British Empire cricket analogy. Hey, they really, they really thumped us, the Russians. Yeah, no, they yeah. killed like thousands of your people. They massacred You're them. Picking off your civilians yeah. as they ran from you in the desert. Yeah, true. <laughs> so, in 1884, uh, Russia continues its its push through Turkmen territory, bringing the Russian Empire very close to the borders of Persia and Afghanistan. This brought them very close to where the British were occupying in in Afghanistan at this time. Uh, so between Merv and the current Afghan border is about 150 miles or so of semi-desert. This is where, I guess, the, the, the rock and the hard place kind of, you know, brushed up against each other, two massive empires. Um, you know, I, I just have this image of like a, a Russian meeting a, a Brit at the, at the border of Afghanistan and sort of being like, oh, no, we've, we've you know, sorry, old chap, we've already... We've already conquered this part, so uh, you guys, you guys better turn around and, and uh, you know, <laughs> stay where you are. So, um, once Russians had captured the Afghan fort of Pranjde, Britain came close to threatening war because this was right on the Afghan border, and this known this became known as the Pranjde uh, mm. Pranjde incident. Uh, so Britain had at this time lo- saw Russian expansionism into the region as a threat to its presence in India. Uh, the Reasonable. Trans-Caspian Railway also would allow Russia to move troops back and forth into the area very quickly if it needed to, and Britain was very aware of that. Right. Uh, but Russia wanted to continue its conquest of Central Asia and keep expanding. In the summer of 1884, both sides agreed to form an Afghan Boundary Commission, and representatives from each side were sent to meet at Seraks in October, but both of them were delayed. During the intervening period, Russian forces continued to press into Afghan lands, moving south past the generally accepted border as they did so. And uh, this eventually sparked a conflict in March 1885. It's the classic Russian Russian sneaky border technique. Yeah, they, like, no, they no, kind of knew this bit they, were, we they were pushing and pushing, pushing too far, but they, they sort of... It seems to me that they, they, they kind of wanted a conflict. You know, they, they wanted the, an excuse to mm-hmm. push further south. All right. So this conflict in 1885 resulted in the death of 11 Russians and over 900 Afghan tribesmen. The news of this conflict reached England about a month later, and preparations for war were begun between England and Russia. The Tsar mm-hmm. then quickly backpedaled, uh, negotiated a hasty settlement with the British, and the crisis partly was averted by the Amir of Afghanistan, who described the conflict not as a battle or like a, an attack by the Russians, but just as a border skirmish to the British. So they, they the British sort of asked uh, the Emir of mm-hmm. Afghanistan like what had happened and and how this this conflict come about, and he sort of played it down to a certain extent uh, because he didn't want hmm. Russians yeah. and and please and don't British invade forces. my country. Yeah, please don't much more. start a war on my on my doorstep. Please don't have a yeah. world war on my country. Exactly. Yes. Uh, so by 1894, Russia had taken control of almost all of Turkmenistan, apart from, I think, the very eastern parts of, of what we know as modern Turkmenistan. Okay. In 1898, the Russian oblast of Turkestan, not Turkmenistan, Turkestan, is established. I couldn't be clearer. Yeah. 
This remained an isolated outpost of uh, Russia until 1906, when a direct uh, rail link with European Russia was opened via the Trans-Caspian Railway. So we mm. now have a, a full railway running directly from, you know, I, I presume you can go from Moscow all the way into Turkmenistan. Russian presence in the in the region increased dramatically, uh, brought a lot of traders into Turkmenistan, and Russia also, you know, wanted to to a certain extent colonize the region, and so pushed a lot of its own people into Turkmenistan. It was uh, this process was overseen by a specially created migration department, who would resettle people into Turkmenistan and and created. Uh, specific Russian-dominated cities, uh, the most well-known of these being Ashgabat. Oh, right. Yeah. This caused uh, quite a bit of discontent, as you can imagine, among local Turkmen people, which was only increased thanks to the harsh oversight of the Russian forces in Turkmenistan. Mm. Can I yeah. inject a, an aside here? Um, I came across a, sure, go for an it. interesting little tidbit uh, from this period that I had absolutely no idea about so have you guys ever heard of the the baha'i faith i have not mm, it's kind vaguely. of a i have quite small religious movement that cropped up in in sort of persia and iran in the late like 1800s 1900s as a kind of a almost like a compromise like it's sort of islam based but it sort of says that christians had it right too and the jews were also right and everyone was getting at the truth and now i've come to give you the final version uh, like a Unitarian yeah, version of yeah yeah so quite a kind of lovey dovey like uh, inclusive religion and they were horribly persecuted by by the uh, of course oh oh absolutely yes. that goes without saying <laughs> horribly persecuted by the Persians because they were you know they were heretics peaceful um, but I I was just given a tip on this and it turns out that the first Baha'i house of worship was built in Ashgabat. Which seems completely out right. of place, based on the regions you yeah, associate with this this small but still existent faith. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it was uh, basically 1887. Some refugees fled from Persia to Ashgabat, and the Russians weren't threatened by this new religion because they weren't Muslim. So they were happy to let let a small we're, community we're, exist in Ashgabat. A, a severe minority. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Just don't and be set successful. up their house, the first house of worship. And I th- think it, it did quite well until religion became a problem generally in the Soviet era. Mm. Uh-oh. Yeah. But uh, that's just kind of an interesting little anecdote from, from this, from the Russian Empire era is you don't really, you know, religious tolerance was higher than in, than in Persia. For a while. For a while. And then not. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So by early 1916, then uh, Russian involvement in World War I, especially against the Ottoman Empire, was causing increased tensions between Turkmen people and their Russian rulers. I mean, you know, uh, as because we mentioned at the top of the episode. Because of the distant relationship? Yeah, between... yeah. So, yeah, I mean, okay. I, I guess they're all, broadly speaking, Turkic people. Uh, so, you know, the Ottoman Empire was, was a, a Turkic empire. And, um, so the Ottoman Empire was kind of what happened after the Seljuk Empire was the bit I think, around yeah Anatolia. I think it was kind of like the, the, the Seljuk Empire version 2.0 is, is my understanding the, 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 yeah. the bit of the Seljuk Empire over towards Turkey eventually conquered Constantinople and mm. became the Ottoman Empire right that's that's kind of what happened there but mm-hmm. uh, they I suppose it's a good point as any to mention that like the languages are you know Turkish 
Azerbaijani uh, or at least some of the languages spoken in Azerbaijan and, and Turkmen are all very clearly related. So if, if you are a speaker of of, of Turkmen, uh, Azerbaijani is, is in, intelligible just about. Right. And if you're Azerbaijani, you can understand a lot of Turkish. Turkish and Turkmen is a bit more of a stretch, but they're, they're yeah, they're clearly cousin languages. Yeah. And so the people, it wouldn't be crazy for the people to feel some kind of affinity to each other. Sure. As Muslim, yeah. Turkic-speaking... Turkic peoples. Yeah. Yeah. So, but in this case, it's like, well, you're Russian now. Um, and, you know, we, we need, we, we're going <laughs> to point you guys... Forget all that stuff now. Yeah. Well Forget Russian. all your history. Again, and... Bloody well, I guess. Yeah. Actually, you so... will not like it, but you will still be Russian. Mm-hmm. So, also, uh, Tsar Nicholas II had also recently signed a law that would conscript Central Asian men from the age of 19 to 43 into labor battalions. So I, I think not necessarily right. on the front lines, but they would be support troops hmm. for uh, digging services stuff. on, yeah, digging trenches and cooking meals and that sort of thing. Yeah. Sounds very like um, how African, uh, exactly, African yeah. colonized people were used by the British. Yeah. Cleaning up after the war. Yeah. So they were uh, conscripted into labor battalions for service on the Eastern Front during World War One. So again, against the Ottoman Empire. Uh, mm -hmm. This led right. to an uprising known as the Central Asian Revolt of 1916. That's such a romantic name for. Uh, in like Kyrgyzstan, this this has a a, a specific name, the the Orkun. It's it's known as uh, this incident. This revolt was obviously difficult for the Russians to tackle because most of their troops were at war at the time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. but eventually, Russia was able to muster up to thirty thousand troops, which brutally crushed this revolt across Central Asia establishing military law, massacring thousands of Central Asians, and imposing the death penalty upon anyone found to have been involved in any way with the revolt. Um, Great. I won't get into it in too much detail, uh, but the, I mean, the numbers, yeah, the numbers on this are still disputed, but the number of deaths are estimated from anywhere between 3,000, according to Russian sources, to between 150 oh and 250,000, oh. according to some uh, sources in Kyrgyzstan. Those differ slightly. Uh, they do, yeah. yes. Uh, in August 2016, a public commission in Kyrgyzstan concluded that this 1916 incident should be labeled as a genocide, which, according to most sources that I read about this, it you know it definitely was. I mean, it's only after the fall of the USSR that they began to actually teach um, kids about this in Russia. You know, it was it was basically wiped from the history books in the USSR. Of course, this incident, right. but um, yeah. yeah, so. I'm but speaking of the USSR, like the Rus this was still the Russian Empire, right? It was, was until the following at year. This point, so yeah. uh, we're come, we're. Oh. It, I'm just looking at the year and thinking. Yep, we're coming up on the. Well, USSR a lot of their place really at that point. So yeah, uh, 1917, the following year, we have the October mm. Revolution. Uh, mm. Bolsheviks rise to power, and Ashgabat became a base for anti-Bolshevik counter-revolutionaries who I believe were, mm -hmm. were Mensheviks and who came okay. uh, very soon after came under attack from Soviet loyalists. Workers from the Trans-Caspian Railway then took the opportunity at this time to form their own very short-lived uh, state known as Trans-Caspia. A, 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 railway, a railway worker based state of Trans-Caspia. Yes. That's so, a very specific population. <laughs> yes, about a thousand of them. I mean, it wasn't just them. They weren't the only inhabitants, but they were sort of the leaders of this oh, movement okay. to create their own state. Okay. 
Um, and it was I about call a, this country Shoe Factoria. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was about a thousand of them, and they would, for a time, take control of Ashgabat, uh, and they were uh, briefly bolstered by help from a British general, Wilfred Mallison, in what was known as the Mallison Mission. So he supplied them with guns and uh, some troops uh, because he had been tasked by the British government to resist the spread of Bolshevism into the region. Again, presumably to uh, protect British interests in India. Yeah. Although the Trans-Caspian government managed to resist Soviet forces for around a year, eventually the British Mm. saw that this was a lost cause and that their hold on the region couldn't be maintained and withdrew in 1919, effectively spelling the end for the Trans-Caspian government. So... Uh, that, that right. I mean, that was an uh, interesting footnote, but yet yeah, didn't last for very long. Writing was on the wall for those turkeys, I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. It's Turkmenis. Mm. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, boy. Ugh. We have some fun, guys. <laughs> we have some laughs. In 1921, <laughs> the Turkestan Autonomous Soviet Socialist Republic is established, an ASSR, which I think we, we spoke about in Georgia as well. Um, mm-hmm. It was SSRs yeah. and ASSRs. Um, and the Turkestan... Is that related to Ars Acer or... <laughs> no. Uh, Ars Acid, wasn't it? Or... Yeah, that was. Yeah. Ars Acid. Ars Acid. So Turkmenistan formed a part of this ASSR as well as uh, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan. So There's a huge region. Oh, I see. So Turkestan they, they sort of... was like all of the, all of the Turkic yes. folk. Basically, most together. of Central Asia okay. was the Turkestan ASSR. Aha, that's an important distinction. Yes. Then in 1922, uh, a treaty between Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Transcaucasia, which is modern-day Georgia, Armenia, Mm -hmm. and Azerbaijan, formed the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, uh, which we would know today as the USSR. Turkmenistan then becomes a fully-fledged constituent republic of the USSR, or an SSR, in 1925. Oh, God. There's a lot of S's in this. Um, Yeah. And, yeah, in the... 1920s and 1930s and across the 1920s and 1930s there was sporadic uh, armed resistance and popular uprising against the Soviet program of agricultural collectivization and secularization again like you mentioned Joe with the, the, the whole religion thing you know they were sort of stamping out religion everybody is everybody is uh, yeah everybody is Russian everybody is uh, Soviet um, and and collectivization was brutal like um, yeah. like Basically, the herds were all collectivized into mm-hmm. communal ownership, and it wasn't really replaced with um, very much industry. You know, it was it was very much just here is cotton. We 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 have all your cows you, now. You do cotton, yeah, yeah, or your goats, whatever. You'll be on cotton. Uh, that you know, taking nomadic people and telling them they're communist workers. Like, what's what's a worker? What's a factory? What's a yeah? What's you? a farmer? Um, so I have a quote here from uh, a book called Tribal Nation The Making of Soviet Turkmenistan by Adrian mm. Lynn Edgar and uh, it's just an interesting insight into how this kind of forced collectivization uh, sort of almost helped to form the, the basis of, of modern Turkmenistan in a way and, and a modern Turkmenistan right. identity become a national yeah. consciousness yeah so she says, in the early 20th century, a handful of Turkmen had, had been exposed to new ideas of identity then circulating in Central Asia. Some had attended schools sponsored by the Russian colonial regime, uh, which had introduced them to European understandings of nationhood. 
Other th- others had come into contact with hmm. secular forms of Turkic nationalism advocated by Muslim reformers in the Russian and Ottoman empires. In part because of their exposure to these new ideas, Turkmen elites were willing to shift their primary loyalty from particularistic genealogical affiliations to the broader idea of a Turkmen nation. In fact, their support for Turkmen nationhood frequently went beyond what Moscow expected or considered desirable. Turkmen identity was reinforced in the 1920s and 1930s by the Soviet policy of nativization, which promised preferential treatment in employment and higher education to to the titular nationality of each republic. As a direct result of this policy, a broader Turkmen identity became not merely a vague aspiration, but something with real political and economic meaning. So I thought that was, you know, that's quite interesting is, you know, I mean, it, it obviously is a terrible thing to try to kind of conform all these people. Square peg, round hole stuff. Yeah. But, um, I mean, there, there, there was sort of a, a forging of a national identity that came with that. Yep. I actually don't have a lot about World War II. There's not a huge amount of information that I could find about specific no. uh, Turkmenistan uh, forces in, in World War II because they were all that's fine. Soviet, I guess. But uh, there was an interesting footnote here about the Turkestan Legion, uh, which was a name for military units composed of the Turkic peoples who fought with the Wehrmacht during World War II. Um, Oh, okay. And I think this is something that we saw in Georgia as well, if I remember correctly about them. Oh, were they... Yeah. Did they consider them Aryan because of their Iranian heritage? I don't think so, no. I think... So what I have here is that... um, Although Turkic people had uh, been considered initially as very, very much racially inferior by the Nazis, uh, as um, most people were, this attitude changed in 1941 when their invasion of the Soviet Union began to uh, not go so well. Yeah. Yeah. So the Nazis then needed manpower and uh, they attempted to harness the anti-Russian sentiment of the Turkic peoples. many of whom were actually uh, prisoners of war in Nazi prisoner of war camps uh, for political gain. They were like, wow, you guys actually hate the Soviet Union as much as we do. And uh, we need people who, you know, can help out in, you know, various places along the the Western and Eastern fronts. So the first Turkestan Legion was mobilized in May 1942, and it would eventually expand to over 16,000 soldiers by 1943. Mm, And under the Wehrmacht's command, these units were deployed pretty much only on the Western Front in France and Italy, which isolated them from the Red Army and prevented uh, anyone from defecting. So just in case there were sort of people that, yeah, that would have wanted to jump the lines. Other battalions went to Italy and a couple went to Yugoslavia as well. And unfortunately, much of the, you know, uh, well, I don't know about unfortunately, um, Much of the Turkestan Legion was ultimately, yeah, unfortunately, these Nazis. Sadly, uh, these Nazis didn't do so yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> unfortunately. True colors them. come out now, Luke. Uh, yeah. Jesus. Uh, so much of the Turkestan Legion was ultimately imprisoned by British forces uh, when they, you know, swept the, the, the Western Front. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Fortunately for them. Fortunately for yeah. them, they were imprisoned. Just yeah. for them, they, got a they lot were worse. imprisoned. Oh, but uh, what happened after that was that they were repa- repatriated to the Soviet Union. Um, so, oh, I imagine Uh-oh. that was unfortunate for them. <laughs> I don't know yeah, exactly right. where they ended yeah, up, okay. but I, I can't imagine it was good. So, uh, uh, yeah, Siberia. We, yeah. we we know we know where they ended up. Let's be honest. Yeah. We know under Joe Stalin's boot heel. That's where they ended up. So yeah. we'll take a quick break and then we'll go on to um, the fall of communism. 
Yay, something to look forward to. I found a wonderful quote on the uh, the U.S. Library of Congress has country profiles of a lot of countries. I was and, reading uh, that too. Yeah, I decided to. Yeah, I decided to have a look at that. They're like, quite detailed, um, mm-hmm. and the one on Turkmenistan starts is perfect for beginning this section. Uh, quote: During the next half century, Turkmenistan played a designated economic role within the Soviet Union and remained outside the course of major world events. Even the major liberalisation movements that shook Russia in the late 1980s had little impact. Uh, I'll, I'll go a little bit deeper, but in, in summary, um, not a hell of a lot happened. Uh, there was benefit from widespread literacy and improved healthcare, for sure. Um, infant mortality was still the highest in the USSR, but was vastly improved that, yeah. from from earlier times. Um, but there was not too much really happened. And of course, the introduction of cotton, uh, cotton growth and manufacture as like a primary goal of the region. Uh, changed society a little bit but while major liberalisation movements didn't shake Turkmenistan unfortunately in in 1948 the the earth did and Mm. there was a a terrible devastating earthquake in Ashgabat yeah devastating absolutely Mm -hmm. uh, that may have killed up to two thirds of the population of the city whoa that's mental numbers are hard Mm -hmm. to come by because in Soviet Union statistics, uh, calculate you or something. Yeah, um, <laughs> trying to think oh, yeah. how to phrase it. Numbers, but number you. I don't it, know. it was a four seven point three earthquake. Seven point three uh, is a lot. Yeah, one hundred seventy six thousand people had lived in Ashgabat beforehand, and basically the, uh, the the casualties are anywhere from ten to one hundred thousand. We'll never know. Okay. Right. Okay. Um, and yeah, because of censorship, it wasn't very well reported on, and it took a long time for help to arrive from Russia. So that that was a really devastating, um, devastating to the built environment and to the, the mm-hmm. population. Uh, say, for instance, that that house of worship I mentioned earlier, I'm pretty sure doesn't exist anymore. Okay. Uh, you know, a, a lot of a lot of history went away. Also, an interesting um, person who was affected by this is a, a, a kid called uh, Saparmurat Niazov who I think... I've heard of him. We will talk about at length later. But his mother, um, Gorbin Soltan Eike... Oh, this was was the earthquake? Yeah, was killed in this earthquake. Oh, wow, I didn't didn't realise that. Uh, His father had died during World War II, uh, and so he was left an orphan. And so he lived in an orphanage for a while before eventually being placed with with distant relatives and being raised by them. Sounds like that would uh, leave him in a very well-adjusted mindset. Yeah, and there's some dispute he, whether any well. of that's true. Uh, there's okay. limited verification for this story yeah. that he told of himself, but it's the story that we have. Right. Uh, and another couple of little tidbits to mention during this era as we approach the end of the Soviet era is, is that um, the flag was awful. Oh, terrible. Terrible. I mean... I think I think we've touched on it before, maybe in Georgia, that like Soviet flags just generally are terrible. I mean, they're Soviet, so they flag you. Is that? But this flag, in addition to being awful, tells an interesting story. So, 
In the 20s, it was a red flag with TSSR written on it in yellow on the top left-hand corner. Okay, yeah. that sounds awful. And then in the 30s and 40s and 50s, it changed to a red flag with yellow script saying T, what looks like TCCP, but is TSSR in Cyrillic script. Oh, right, right, yeah. And that draws attention to, to language, something about language that I think is really interesting, which is that how do you write Turkmen? What do you think people have been doing up till this point to write Turkmen? I mean, I don't know what script they would have been using. I mean, they're probably Arabic. on Cyrillic now. Arabic, exactly. Oh, so right. it, it was in the Persian sphere of influence. It was always part of Persian empires. So Arabic right. was the script available. But it's reasonably unsuited to writing Turkmen. It doesn't have enough vowels and it's, you yeah. know, there's a lot of reasons. It's not ideal, so it can't really accurately represent how the language sounds. Um, and so there was movements in the early 20th century that Russia promoted to um, to modernize uh, to modernize how Turkmen was written into a Latin script, which is a bit surprising. But um, all right, it was in line with what was happening in Turkey, I suppose, which was, was the, the, the time. biggest Turkic language group. And Ataturk, the, the the leader of secularizing Turkey, had unilaterally yeah. decided to use a Western script to yeah. kind of face his country away from what he saw as backward religious world right. towards a modern yeah a modern na- nationalistic world and i suppose this is this is what's sort of happening so there was a conference in 1926 on how to write turkic languages and all the delegates from moscow just decreed that across the ussr there would be latinization and the arabic script would be ad- abandoned all right uh, so okay. i suppose all the work was kind of some of the work was already done on that front, but it meant to move away from Islam, which was as was considered good. But it was difficult to implement. And then, you know, from the 40s onwards, centralising of, of, and Russification of everything meant yeah. that there wasn't so much of a drive to write Turkmen at all. Yeah, exactly. And Cyrillic script and Russian language came to dominate maybe, in all maybe fields. Maybe Russian's fine. Maybe we just all speak Russian. How about yeah. that? And so Good if note, you did write we? Turkmen, you wrote it using the Russian letters you had available. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and in 1953, they got a new flag, which is is much nicer. It's red with two blue parallel lines across the middle, representing two rivers, and the little okay. hammer and sickle in the corner, just in case you forgot. But does uh, it have a carpet on it, Joe? No, not not that one. Right. So it's not the best flag available. Right. And then we we mentioned how religion has been attacked. Uh, Basically, some customs were kept alive, like burial customs still looked quite Muslim. Uh, Circumcision still existed, but basically no one was taught any religion anymore. (laughs) We're we're snipping it, but we don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. Keep snipping, lads. There's no particular reason for us to do this, but we're going to do it anyway. Yeah. We always snip, have. Snip, snip. And yeah. so they were very much disconnected from the Muslim world, which was a, a change. Exploitation of fossil fuels really ramped up during this region, as all through the desert there's gas uh, reserves and, and, and oil reserves. And oil. this became an important part of, of uh, the USSR's interest in the area. Yeah. Uh, there was also a canal built. Uh, the Karakum Canal was built in the 1950s, which is a 1,375-kilometre-long canal. I assume that's named after the desert, right? 
Because after the desert, which it was going to irrigate. Sure. Yeah. So it's draining the Amudarya River, which forms the eastern border, to allow cotton production, basically in the desert. And we don't have time to dwell on it, but like this is one of the greatest ecological catastrophes of the 20th century. The Aral Sea is now, I think, 25% of its original size. Wow. Since okay. the 1950s. So the it's Aral just, Pond. It's just drying up into into essentially ponds. Yeah. Uh, really salty ponds, and, and it's be, because most of the river's flow is now going to irrigation in the desert. Mm-hmm. There was a an interesting comment I saw about how how Turkmenistan became very authoritarian, which is that during this era, there was a culturally ingrained deference to authority uh, and a rural-based population that was naturally yeah. mm-hmm. conservative and easily manipulated by the government, and that proved to be an advantage to the Communist Party. The The quote from Andrei Nevetsky is, is, society is asleep, and sort of people in the countryside didn't push back against urban government. The urban government just did its own thing and was very Russian. Yeah, he modernised the, the hydrocarbon production during his ter- term in office. Standard of living grew under his leadership. And uh, he also oversaw the discovery of a 62 trillion cubic feet gas field in Dauletabad. That sounds like a lot. That will become which became important. became the largest gas field in the world outside Russia and the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Pretty big. Yeah. That's pretty big. But he was forced to resign over a cotton-based corruption scandal. This scandal also hit Uzbekistan to an insane amount, yeah. like it was one of the greatest crises in the late Soviet Union. Wow. And it was basically lots of um, misinformation about how much cotton was being produced and were people being bribed to, you know, receive empty trains that should have been full of cotton that didn't exist and signing it off as existing. And basically... Central Asia was scamming Russia and not and getting away with it, and people were lining their pockets with money for cotton that didn't exist. What, what, I, wow. what I read was that it was essentially you've heard the term compromise used around Trump. Yeah, that this was essentially large scale compromise. That um, mm. the the head head knob in the area, whatever his name was, was saying we're we're gonna double, we're gonna triple production, we're gonna have the best cotton, we'll build a wall of cotton, etc. And um, basically, the goals he set were insane, and he couldn't meet them. And he was, you know, working people to the bone to but try to hit like, the, the markings we he had. We don't need to meet them. We just well, need to yeah, say exactly. that we them. And but also that yeah. the 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 people doing the farming were complicit because they were under massive pressure for these these uh, mm. uh, targets. They were putting rocks in the in the in the bags. Exactly. The so you know. Uh, the guy basically, um, the guy who replaced Brezhnev, I think it was Andropov, he um, he basically collected all this information uh, as things had kind of gone along and like, well, I, I have evidence that of this, 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 and this, and this. And then when he got into power after Brezhnev, uh, he basically put the kibosh in this guy and just uh, hung him out to dry, basically. Uh, and that was the end of him. Yep. Ba- ba- basically. Uh, and and under, under Gorbachev's Glasnost era, there were new flags, new anthems, Laws on language Yay. shifted towards encouraging Turkmen culture. And given that uh, Gaparov had had to resign, there was a vacancy mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. for first secretary of the Communist for Party. Somebody. Who who wants it? Who wants the gig, lads? Do you fancy it? Uh, no, no. No, I'm good. Can you think of anyone? What about a, an upstart little orphan from, uh, from Ashgabat? Punchy little orphan mm. boy. 
Yeah. Fed on scraps and fish heads. Got the, got the guts. <laughs> He's got the guts? Yeah. <laughs> All right, so... When we divide up uh, who does what in the podcast, I was very eager to get this section. I grabbed it with both hands. I grabbed it like a Trump lawyer grabs a plea deal. Uh, so we begin with the chaos of the fall of communism. Across the USSR, people wondered, hey, let's give this capitalism lark a go. As long as I can eat my weight in beetroot, it'll all be fine. Russians love beetroot, guys. That's a mm -hmm. note from earlier. Um, so there were joyous scenes in Eastern Europe or whatever their version of joy that they had to hand after 40 years of communism was. <laughs> uh, you know, vodka. They have vodka scenes in, in Eastern Europe. Uh, life in the East was different. They had been so ignored and exploited in equal measure. Uh, they were kind of welcoming the change, but depressingly but understandably thought, hey, I hope no one comes and takes my tiny, withered, dusty beetroot. With the USSR gone, it was sink or swim for the Turkmens. And they went to the polls uh, apparently, while they were still part of the USSR, they had voted... Yeah, they had two. They had two. They had two, two referendums. It was 98% for preservation of the USSR originally, uh, although... Wow. With 100% turnout. You have to imagine a lot of fraud baked into that number. Um, and then in 91, they voted 94% for independence and elected a man, a certain that's man. A, that's a big swing. That's it. It's almost like the first one was, uh, was not Total real. Total crapola. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Sapur Murat Niyazov, new president of Turkmenistan. Ow! But the now, crazy Niyazov wolf. had been the first secretary of the Communist he, he, Party. He'd already been this, the ruler for like five years, basically, yeah. Since 85 yeah. or 86. Yeah. So he was just the guy who was he there. He was still there. That's well it. qualified. Uh, and independence yeah. was kind of a surprise, right? Exactly. The, basically, the, they wanted independence. They didn't ask for okay, it. Okay, we're independent now. Great. Shut up. <laughs> basically, that was it. I'm still here. Stop, yep. stop talking to me. Um, so the political leadership had to ride this ride this wave of wanting independence. Um, the Communist Party you know, top knobs were better able to insulate themselves from the fallout of post-communism uh, because they were much further away and they made themselves mm -hmm. emblematic of the new independence. Whose fault is everything? Yeah. Gorbachev, probably. Definitely not me. Uh, I'm one of you guys, remember? I've been here for ages. Uh, look at all the national buildings I'm building, which they started doing national programs and so on. Uh, have you tried these uh, new independence beetroots? Independence Turkmen beetroots? Mmm, delicious, yes. Um, a quote from, uh, from the time by a guy called Michael Oakes. Turkmenistan's population has, has been able to watch television since 1988, uh, reporting bloody ethnic conflicts in various Soviet and then formerly Soviet republics. Mm -hmm. Undoubtedly, they are grateful to have been spared such disasters. So the communists transitioned to democratic nationalists in, in name, essentially. But... What about the actual democratic nationalists? Where, where were they? In 1990, the Democratic Party of Turkmenistan was formed. Yay! The party was forced to work secretly. In 1991, a party congress was held in Moscow that prepared the party for Turkmen politics. Their registration documents were prepared and submitted, but the documents were returned without a reply. In 1991, the party was forced to rename... We're off to a good start, The guys. party was forced to rename yeah. itself as the Party of Democratic Development because the Communist Party had stolen their name. <laughs> the Democratic Party. <laughs> so there was actual Democrat, Democratic Nationalists, but uh, they were forced to change their name and then no one really heard about them. So, oh, we lost your so form. So they did today. actually, they, they, they opened the application forms, looked at the name, thought, that's a good name. Yep. Closed it and sent it back. Take, <laughs> like, switcheroo. Take that, we'll, take, we'll have that. Done. 
That's much wow. better than the Communist Party of Turkmenistan, um, given yeah. the Soviet Union just collapsed. So, yeah, yes. the, the, How about we now be Nationalist Democrats? Oh, cool. Okay. As long as it's still us. As long as it's still us doing it? Yeah. Yeah, I'll be whatever. There was a Tajik, uh, I love carpets and Islam. There was a Tajik civil and, uh, war. There was Azerbaijan was falling apart, so they were they were super yeah. scared and really keen to hang on to hang on to power. They also had at the time in eighty nine, Turkmenistan was seventy two percent Turkmen and seven point five percent consisting over about a hundred different nationalities, and these were where the kind of um, you know endemic experience was. Um, because they didn't really give good jobs to Turkmen. There was all this 7.5% of actual, you know, Russians and so on. It was 9% Russian. Um, that's where all the experience in, in gas and stuff was. So they were quite keen to hold on to them. Uh, they also saw examples in Singapore of South Korea that if you just go slow and steady, you don't really need to change that much and everything kind of works out okay. So you know, independence, sure, but like be chill, basically. Uh, there's no reason to go, we Turkmen are the best people in the world and kill all the exactly. foreigners. They passed a new constitution in 92, basic rights of citizens, equal protection, freedom from discrimination, due process, all nice stuff, uh, all rubbish. Uh, none of this is uh, actually how it panned out because the government structure is a presidential republic. Uh, the executive branch, the president, has enormous power. Uh, allowing Niyazov to control the legislative and judicial branches. The president appoints the provincial governors. He appoints the judges. He appoints the chairman of the Supreme Court. He appoints the general prosecutor. His decrees are binding throughout the country at all times. He heads the council of ministers, wow. whose members are chosen by him. Uh, and there's no parliamentary supervision. He, so He's eh, a dictator, essentially. Good. Oh, that, no, oh, no, no. So. Absolutely. Classic no, post-communist dictator. Okay, mm -hmm. so... The, we're getting into the crazy stuff. There's a really good New York New York article, a guy who goes in, I think, about 2004 and just has a look around and reports back. Labeled by the Wall Street Journal as the most upwardly mobile despot, Niazov began as a power plant engineer who was schooled in Leningrad. He was installed by Gorbachev, mm -hmm. da, 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 you know all that. He renamed himself Turkmen Bashi, as in Boss Turkmen, leader of the Turkmen people, which he did by creating an international association of Turkmen and then making himself the boss of it. Turkmen Bashi had written a sort of national Bible called Runama, Book of the Soul. I, I've, I've tried reading it. It's, it's, it's like, it's all on archive.org and it's very interesting, but... Quite mad? Like, it it's, sounds mad. I mean, he wrote a religious nationalistic text and then made it a mandatory reading for all school yeah. children. It's, it's exactly what you'd expect that it's, to be. That's starting a religion about himself, essentially. And about the people, like it kind of goes into the depths of Turkmen history to sort of show how the people have always been, always had certain characteristics oh, that are the kind they should still have. He, he also built a vast space age mosque, which he named after himself, mm -hmm. uh, Sapramurat yeah. Hajj Mosque, and he encouraged people to visit it annually in a kind of a local Turkmen Hajj. Oh, clever. Yeah. Uh, he had portraits of himself all over the city. In some, he looked like a fat and grinning Dean Martin. In others, he was a truculent CEO <laughs> with a chilly smile. A, a common image wow. showed him chin on hand, squinting in insincere bonhomie like a lounge singer. <laughs> um, is this th still this, from that New Yorker article? Th it is, yeah, specifically from that. All right. Um, <laughs> okay. be very specific. So, uh, here's a yeah. few quotes from conversations the guy had on his way around. Um, so he had renamed the months of the year, January after himself, April for his mother, uh, the days of the week and the names of the years were also new. He um, 
Named 2003 after his father, 2004 after his mother, and 2005 was The Year of Runama, that book we were talking about. Mm -hmm. Which is one of the months also. Yep, probably. (laughs) He was on TV last night, my driver said. Well, he's on almost every night, he said. He said, if you read my book three times, you'll go to heaven. How does he know this? He said, I asked Allah to arrange it. (laughs) Um, life Life expectancy fell to 63 more than 15 years below the European Oof. average. And even though Turkmenbashi had banned the diagnosis of several communicable diseases, there so, excuse, he what? banned the diagnosis how? of several communicable... Uh, he banned it, uh, Joe. It is banned. Do You're you... not allowed. Not allowed. Okay. Despite this, right. there had been... Like, un- <laughs> measles are now illegal, so... Despite this, yeah. there had been unofficial reports of the plague. <laughs> the, the, yes, no. the plague. The, the actual, actual damn plague. Bubonic plague. He had closed down all hospitals outside Ashgabat, replacing thousands of healthcare workers with military conscripts. <sighs> Another conversation. More than 60% of the population is unemployed. I'm surprised people aren't angry. Some are angry, but we have cheap things too. Natural gas, electricity, gasoline, costs the equivalent of three cents a gallon. He could fill the tank up of his car for 50 cents. What do you? That does help. What do you think the problems are here, I asked. We have problems, but we can't address problems because there are no problems. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yeah, here, here's nice. a reference to the, the thing I was saying, one of you guys said, and I was like, oh, I get it now. 2004 is an article from The Independent. Ice Palace. Mr. Niazov has ordered that a palace made of ice be constructed in the mountains outside Ashgabat, the capital, despite the fact that temperatures in the region can reach up to 50 degrees. Let us build a palace of ice big and grand enough for a thousand people, he enthused on national TV. Our children can learn to ski and ice skate. We can build cafes and restaurants. He has already ordered the construction to begin. The palace will supposedly be finished within ten months. The 64-year-old dictator wants a giant aquarium stocked with tropical fish to be fixed atop the palace and has ordered that the building be linked with Ashgabat by cable car. (sighs) Okay, uh, here's a more condensed list of, of crazy stuff. Um, he changed the word for bread to the name of his dead mother. Uh, he named yep. several schools, two airports, a city, some theatres, a brand of vodka, two kinds of cologne, a kind of tea, and a meteorite after himself. Yep, he put his fate And a city, that port, that port city, city on the... Uh, yeah, that's Turkmenbashi as well. Turkmenbashi. He put his face on every denomination of currency, ordered every citizen of his country to fly a Turkmenistan flag over their homes at all times, and he wrote a new national anthem so that every sporting event started with a choir singing about why he was so great. Um, Have you ever seen Sasha Baron Cohen's The Dictator? It is kind of him, isn't it? That's, I kind of think a, lo- a lot of the jokes make sense now. Yeah. The, you know the uh, where he changes positive and negative to both being his name? Oh, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> which leads to a lot of confusion. When a doctor says that the results of your test are, are Aladdin. And the, the patient is just smiling. And right. then there's a pause and he starts crying. And then there's a longer pause and he starts smiling again. Smiling again, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, he changed the programming of all three national state-run TV channels so that at any time during the day, citizens of Turkmenistan can flip on the TV and see a real-time live feed of his office. Hmm. Instead of uh, the TV network logo at the bottom of the screen, this is just a picture of him uh, in gold. Supper Murat Turkmenbashi the Great abolished the following. Algebra. 
<laughs> Sorry, it's a strong start. <laughs> this is the, that's the, that's the first thing on the list. Oh my god. Okay. Al- algebra, physics, PE, the internet, the Hippocratic Oath, libraries, free press, <laughs> recorded music, smoking, beards, chewing tobacco, the ballet, the opera, the circus, symphonic orchestras, the National Academy of Science, listening to car stereos, dogs because they smell bad, and gold teeth because if people want teeth that hard, they can just chew on their old soup bones. Uh, that okay. was a quote that came up a lot. Uh, there, there are a couple of things that. So you mentioned he had a, a brand of vodka named after him. Yes. And that sort of underlies uh, something we, we discussed before we, we we came on air about about how Islam is back in in it's independent true. Turkmen Turkmenistan. Yep. But mm-hmm. like it's quite it's, it's Turkmen Islam. Islam. Exactly. You know, like uh, it's not the it's not the sort of very pious. Um, very uh, doctrinaire Saudi-led mm. Wahhabist kind of yeah. vibe it's more just you know we used to go to the mosque on Fridays so maybe we, we can do that again that's nice it's nice that we can do that again or yeah. we used to wear veils when we went to the city so let's do that because that's what my grandmother did kind of stuff rather mm-hmm. than it being this really and in fact undue piety um, and like Overzealousness about religion is considered very suspicious. Yeah, uh, because I can see that. I mean, ha- radical Islam border. is a risk to to the regime, obviously, yeah. because you're meant to be loyal to the nation, not to the religion. And so he's building mosques, but he's also sponsoring vodka. Uh, right. Also, with, there's a lot of wine in Turkmenistan, as far as I know. I think they, they have a sure. bit of wine production as well. And uh, okay. j- just one other thing to, to mention around here is. I don't think I, I quite finished my language story, but after independence, they uh, introduced a new alphabet. So Turkmenbashi promulgated a new alphabet, I think, in oh, sweet. 2001 or something. Quite recently. All right. Um, so within our lifetimes, they've gone from not having an alphabet and not being allowed to speak Turkmen to having to speak Turkmen and having a new alphabet foisted upon them by the government. By Mr. Turkmen. <laughs> Turkmen boss. It seems a perfectly fine alphabet, but it's just a, it's just an odd idea to just make up an alphabet and make everyone use it. I I have more things, guys. Of course. Um, no. Okay, Melon Day. Yeah. Melon Day is an annual national holiday in Turkmenistan devoted to festivities to celebrate the country's musk melon. In particular, a recent crossbreed product named Turkmen Bashi Melon. After, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't even need to tell you. After melons. Uh, it, it's, it's praised for its aroma, taste, and large size, as am I. Uh, it takes place on the... Sorry. That was a real, real grosso joke. It takes place on the second Sunday in August. The holiday was established by Turkmen Bashi. Uh, music, events, dancing, blah, blah, blah. In his address to farmers in 2004, Turkmen Bashi said, Almighty God has turned Turkmen soil into a fertile source of an abundance of the tastiest fruits. Among them are Turkmen melons which are the result of farmers' hard work and which have a unique taste reminiscent of the fruit of paradise. Mm, sounds tasty. A tradition. Women have, who give birth to girls have a way of indicating that they want a boy. They will name the daughter Enough, Bestier, <laughs> or Fed Up, Boy Duck. These are common names. I know many. That's from wow. the York article again. Smiling. Maintain a smiling face, Turkmen Bashi was emphatic about smiling. A smile can make a friend for you out of an enemy, he writes. 
When death stares you in the face, smile at it, and it may leave you untouched. Smiling is a form of conversation. Talk to each other with smiles. It is a way of delaying aging. There will never be any wrinkles on a smiling face, as the saying goes. That, that's and in memory, not true. There's not wrinkles true. when you smile. It's very wrinkly. And mm. in memory, it is a source of comfort to him. I often remember my mother. Her smile is visible to me in the dark of night, even if I have my eyes shut. This was perhaps why many of the many, many, many portraits of Bashi showed him with a smile, though he never looked less amused than when he was grinning. His smile, and this may be true of all political leaders, was his most sinister feature. Hmm. So, uh, and also, just to briefly mention, repression. Um, yeah. a, a reporter for Radio Free Europe and a mother of three had been arrested on trumped-up charges, tried secretly without a lawyer, and given six years in jail. Mm-hmm. A month later, uh, she was found dead with a, an apparent head injury, and her body was handed over to her daughter's. Why is Turkmen... This is a joke, by the way, just talking about uh, the the situation there at the time. Why is Turkmen Bashi the richest man in Turkmenistan? Answer, because he has five million sheep. Uh, he was... Ah, uh, ah, that's, yeah. that's funny. No, my my understanding from, from things I've seen online is that like people just assume they're being listened to on the phone. Yeah, for sure. Uh, because they probably are. They, they are. They are. Yeah. Um, you don't express political... Uh, dissent um, and so it's foolish to believe everyone thought Turkmenbashi was a brilliant leader uh, it's just what's he to be gained wasn't. by saying he isn't I mean neither was the Soviet Union neither was the Tsar that's it go with the flow who's go in with power the flow. Like if, you know just do do you have your Keep life your head and, down. and um, so I think it's it's foolish to kind of you know it's, it's not incredibly funny that people are living under a, a kind of quite unhinged regime but you know you have to the stuff he did was funny yes the stuff not the experience of being in that exactly but the the, to think that you know it's just a foolish people going along with it of course it's not any more than any more than any other country with a dictator everyone most people probably have their own problems with it but it's not worth your life to Say, but yeah, they, they, they were that. a people not given to centralized power who were ruled over by Uzbek um, Khanates for centuries, yeah, uh, and then had the Russians come in, mm. uh, and then the Russians kind of stayed because Neozov was fair, the Your day to day life crowd. as a rural Turkmen probably isn't that different under any of these exactly. autocrats. Again, so, keep the head down. Uh, one one interesting description I I, I saw was uh, someone saying that. The movie The Hunger Games seems very fictional. You know that world okay. where there's the districts that have to give tribute to the to the capital, mm-hmm. right. which is full of glorious golden things. Apparently, from a Turkmen point of view, it's not such a, an in- inconceivable um, image. Okay. So let 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 me let me describe some of the things that you can see in uh, in Ashgabat. Ashgabad was entered into the Guinness Book of Records several times. First, as a city with the largest number of buildings finished with white marble, 543. Right. The total yeah. area of the marble finish of the city is 4.5 million square metres. Wow. Secondly, the world's tallest flagpole at 133 metres is set in the city. Third, the largest Ferris wheel. Fourth, the largest fountain complex, Orgos Khan and his sons, uh, with the fountain total area of 15 hectares. Oh Finally, the biggest architectural monument to a star 
is on ter- is is also included in the Guinness Book of Records. And that's before we even mention the rotating golden statue of Turkmenbashi yeah. that rotates to always face the sun. It, it, people say it looks like a toilet plunger, I think. I, I, I read that. Yeah. <laughs> it kind of does. And it also to mention, I mean, yeah, he had monu- as well as the portraits of him around the place. There was also these big golden monuments, mm-hmm. uh, including one like it was a massive digital version of his book. It's like a, a oh, yes. electronic yeah. billboard yeah. that. Uh, yeah, I think has quotations from his book or something. I don't know. It's yeah, sounds about right. Pure pure mania. Okay, so we'll take a quick break and then we'll come back with uh, modern day Turkmenistan, I guess. Should, should we move into modern day? Yeah, well, yeah. I suppose modern day is that Turkmenbashi died. In he did. 2008, somewhat unexpectedly. Was it a heart attack or something? I, I He wasn't noted as being a bit a health nut, I'll put it that yeah. way. Uh, yeah, I think... He yeah. did smile a lot, though. But it, it yeah, wasn't, he wasn't particularly elderly, and there no, wasn't really no. a succession line set up. Nope. I think the guy who replaced him is still there. He's still hanging yeah, out. Yeah, and but... he, he was replaced by, I think, uh, I forget what his role was. He, he was a minister in the government, but he wasn't who, who would have been expected to take over. Yeah, he a was a higher up, but not the obvious deputy yeah. or anything. A guy called um, Berde Muhammadov. And he started rolling back some of the more um, eccentric uh, yeah, changes. That, the real crazy stuff. That that, uh, that Niazov had brought in. Um, he restored the traditional names of the months and the days of the week. Yeah. That, as we mentioned, have been named after various family members of the leader. That's appointing uh, a horse to the Senate stuff. Like, that's <laughs> really yeah. crazy. He announced plans to move the rotating gold statue to the uh, to the um, suburbs away from the center because right. it will get better light there or something he had some good excuse as to why yeah, it wasn't a disrespect to the... no 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 not not because of that at all and you know he's made some moves towards less autocracy less authoritarianism but right. uh, it's definitely not a western style democracy yet no there was one other story i wanted to to say and it's it's really to modern day because you know the, the main industry at the moment is gas and you know, fossil fuels and so on. They're 11th in the world for natural gas production, uh, but 4th in the world for proven reserves. Uh, mainly due to this gas in the top 100 nations in terms of GDP per capita, around the same level as Thailand, basically. So, you know, there's quite a lot of poverty, but it, you know, as a country, they do have wealth. While we're talking about gas... So I've been reading this monster of a book, and I would recommend it. It's called Ghost Wars by Steve Call, and it's an account of the CIA's secret wars in Afghanistan oh. through the 1980s and 1990s and, you know, until all that stuff happened with the buildings and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, there, there's a brief mention of Turkmenistan in it, and it basically mentioned that in 1995, both an American company and an Argentinian company were competing to win the favor of Turkmenistan to take all of this lovely oil and gas and drink it up milkshake style through a big straw. The idea was 
that the straw in question would be going to Pakistan from Turkmenistan. So from Turkmenistan to Pakistan. Now, students of geography will see a problem with that mm. as they don't share a land border. Mm-hmm. What green and pleasant land divides the two? Afpoxing-ganistan. They were going to try and make peace with an emerging faction in the south of Afghanistan who had a fresh new style, a.k.a. the bloody Taliban, oh, no. and ship it to Pakistan. The main aim for the US, who were very keen on the idea, was that it would sideline the Russians and sideline the Iranians, which was the alternative route it could take. Yeah. So, so there were some who said that when the US eventually invaded Afghanistan, and God help listeners who are too young to remember that all, all that fun when it happened, um, that this was to actually make that pipeline a reality. That was one of the main reasons that the US wow. invaded Afghanistan, according to some kind of conspiracy okay. theorists. They wanted to have this happen, sideline the Iranians and the Russians. Hmm. The Taliban, as it turned out, uh, proved to be not as chill as the, everyone had hoped. And the Russians and the British... Uh, uh, the, the fact that the Russian and British empires had broken themselves in invading Afghanistan taught the Americans nothing, and they're still there, of course. Of course, now we realize what a silly idea the whole thing was, right? Right? I suspect not. Right? 2018, February. Mm. New York Times article, they are at it again. An Isle of Man-based shell company is running things... Is there any other kind of Isle of Man company? <laughs> We're running things with Turkmen Gas, the state gas company. This is a quote. The 1,127-mile-long 1, pipe will connect the state of Punjab in northern India with the Galknish gas field in the desert in eastern Turkmenistan. Plans call for an accompanying fiber optic cable and eventually a railroad along part of the route through, essentially, the Taliban controls south of Afghanistan. The Taliban today, essentially, are saying, yep, we'll, we'll help you, no worries. Build all your infrastructure through Taliban territory. Uh, and that Afghanistan would get something like 400 million per year, I think, was the... Was the um, the, the fee that they would charge for rental essentially of the land hmm. but anyway that's that's what they're doing now oh. so like sp- speaking of gas there is an insane uh what not not a natural phenomenon man-made disaster zone that acts as a tourist attraction Yay. in the deserts of uh turkmenistan yeah, this thing is called, um, or known as the door to hell or the gates of hell. It's a natural gas field. Or, or locally as the Darvaza gas crater. Yeah, and we'll, we'll put a link to this or put an image of it in the show notes. But yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a gas field that's collapsed into an underground cavern. Mm. Um, and Which geo- is full of gas. Yeah, and uh, geologists set it on fire to, present, to prevent the, the spread of methane gas uh, in around 1971. And it has yep. been burning continuously ever since. It oh is uh, 69 meters across and is about uh, 30 meters deep. So about 226 feet across and 98 feet deep. And it looks... It, it looks like a cartoon volcano crater. Yeah, it looks amazing. Right. Uh, approximately 50,000 people have visited this thing since 2009. Uh, and, you know, right. just like, you know, roaring flames and boiling mud and, you know, great place to take a selfie. So... <laughs> Yeah, that's... Uh, right. Bring that's the kids, guys. Yeah. But, like, to, my understanding is it was made, like, there was an accident, some some equipment got dropped in. Yeah. They thought, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll just leave this hole, we'll light, we'll flare it to get rid of the gas, and then it'll be fine. And it and just never has gone out. Yeah. It just never went out. Right. Do we have anything else? 
two bullet points are that there are it is a ministry for horses which tries to control the spread of the Achal Teke horse, which is apparently a beautiful horse to ride, very wow. obedient. And they would have been, there's there's an old uh, Turkmen saying that if, uh, if a husband comes to, like if a man comes to court a daughter in the house and the horse doesn't like him, then uh, she shouldn't marry him. So they All were right. sort of as trusted as a dog in, in nomadic society. And a horse divorce, of, of course, made. of course. Indeed. <laughs> and there's also a ministry for carpets uh, and just the, to briefly mention that the modern flag has five carpet designs on it that represent the five major tribes. Oh, yeah. Um, everyone has their own carpet design. It's like yeah, a tartan yeah. clan thing. Yeah. yeah, And they're quite valuable uh, internationally. Like we often hear of Persian rugs, but yeah. Turkmen, Turkmenistani rugs or, or Turkmen rugs are also a, 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 very, also a, thing. a very valuable commodity. And the, the you know, the Yomut and the, the Teke are t- the two big, biggest tribes, I think. And they both have their own kind of carpets. Carpet and mafia. The ministry defends that. Um, it's done. We did it. Yeah. Probably that's probably that's uh, all we urgently A need Turk to mending. say. Yep. Mm. All right. So if you want to learn even more um, about Turkmenistan, you, you should maniac, check out our show notes. You uh, if you haven't had There's enough, no more. Uh, you can also find links to the music that we use in this episode, and uh, you know a few pictures and the flag and all that sort of stuff in our show notes, uh, which you should be able to get in your uh, podcast app or are also available on our website, 80dayspodcast.com. If you want to get in touch with us, mm-hmm. you can email us at 80daysPodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also find us under 80 Days Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Uh, if you would like Where to... good times are had. Yeah. If you would like to help out the show, if you've enjoyed what you've heard, you can review us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you listen to podcasts. That'd be great. It uh, really helps to boost the visibility of the show or just tell a friend or... Uh, share this episode with whoever you think might enjoy it. Um, Write it on a dog. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Podcast is good. Uh, okay. Um, finally, in this episode, we have to say a very heartfelt thank you to the people that power the show. Uh, that would be our patrons. It has been a couple of episodes since we've managed to shout out new backers, who now include Mark Wood, Megan Cox, Erica Hernandez, Nash Mahoney, and Tim Loro. Thank you guys all so much for your support. We really appreciate it. We couldn't do, we literally couldn't do the show without you. Uh, you can check out patreon.com forward slash 80 days podcast to learn more about becoming a patron and getting access to the exclusive perks that are available to patrons. Uh, also, as of this episode, we are now available on Spotify. So if you have a friend who uses Spotify but can't figure out podcasts, then convincing them to tune in just got about 10 times easier. You can search 80 Days over there on Spotify or simply follow the link in the show notes or on our website to subscribe to the show. Now, I think that's enough admin for one episode. Uh, Joe, where can people find out more about you on the internet? They can look at timetoburn.com where burn is spelled B-Y-R-N-E and they'll see one or two things. And Mark? Find me on Twitter, guys, at MarkBoyle86. You can find me at LukeJKelly.com or on Twitter at the LukeJKelly. Thank you, as always, very much for listening, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Thank you. Bye. I I, I drink insane amounts of tea. Fruit infusions. I don't know. Hey. Speaking of infusions, 
Let's infuse this region with nomadic Central Asian tribesmen. Right. <laughs> <laughs>